This is a podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. This University College Dublin Symposium examined the role of visual culture in constructing and critiquing the Irish Free State and national identity in the aftermath of political independence. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online. In this podcast, the National Museum of Ireland and the Metropolitan School of Art, a paper by Orla Fitzpatrick. Among art historians here, so I will open with a painting that's perhaps familiar to quite a few of you. And this is Moynan's depiction of a female student at the Metropolitan School of Art. And it's been interpreted by some as a condemnation of the school's teaching methods and of the South Kensington method in particular, um, which followed a very strict regime of copying from objects such as the plaster cast Medici Venus that you can see here. Um, The application of the South Kensington programme has been amply covered by John Turpin in his history of NCAD. Um, But what interested me um, were the other objects that are visible on the shelf. Um, I'd been aware that the National Museum of of Science and Art, as it was then called, had lent objects to the college for the purpose of copying, and that the record of these exchanges might be used to trace the interrelationship between the two organisations, both before and after independence. Collaboration was, of course, facilitated by the close physical proximity of both institutions. Um, So this beautiful image from the Lawrence Collection shows the cultural complex that existed on Caldera Street in the late 19th century, included not only the purpose-built National Museum of Ireland, the National Library of Ireland, but also the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art, which could be entered to the left of the National Library. Access to the Natural History Museum and the National Gallery could be attained through Leinster House, Today, the institutions that remain on this site are now cut off by, from each other by the Dáil Car Park, and Leinster House blocks access to the Natural History Museum. A spatial grab, which is perhaps, perhaps indicative of the importance placed on cultural institutions in the newly independent state. I won't talk about recent spatial grabs on that site. Um, the following quotation is from an employee of the museum, Lee Mascogan, quite a character, and it refers to the institutional makeup of the institutions. Administration of all these Leinster lawn-centred institutions in pre-1916 days was mainly in the hands of people drawn from the Anglo-Irish establishment, and a certain kind of collaboration operated between us. When George Noble Kemp Plunkett was appointed director of the museum, however, the School of Art was withdrawn from the new director's function and thus began a disintegration which tended towards a diminution of status, internationally speaking. Now, I'm not too sure whether he's talking about a diminution of the museum or the gallery or uh, both. Opened in 1890, the Dean-designed museum includes a central court which becomes filled with a Victorian hodgepodge of objects. The museum had its genesis in the collections of antiquities of the Royal Irish Academy and the Royal Dublin Society. It was by this stage under the auspices of the Department of Agricultural and Technical Instruction. 19th century nationalist politicians and groups had already employed imagery based on the museum's antiquarian collection. The Irish arts and crafts movement had drawn inspiration directly from the collections housed in the museum. After 1922, the newly emerging state would look to an idealised Celtic Christian 
Christian Ireland as represented in the metalwork held in the museum for state imagery and for a sense of historical continuity. In addition to these cultural aspirations and in keeping with the spirit of 19th century industrial exhibitions, the museum's mission was also enhanced to enhance design for industry. The centre court emphasised this role with examples of pottery, glass, lace, all from around the world. It was felt that a comparison with the best in global design could improve contemporary indigenous industrial design. We can see in this image that the upper floor includes um, examples of lace, while plaster casts of Irish and worldwide antiquities form are on the floor of the centre court. And interspersed between these are symbols of imperial power, such as the sculpture um, Walter Hamlin's Charles Birch, which you can see just down here is the uh, man pointing the gun. Um, this was subsequently given to the, to the uh, Imperial War Museum. This is pretty much what the museum centre court looked like until at least the 1920s and the implementation of some of the findings when the implementation of some of the findings of the 1927 Litberg report, whose recommendations I will refer to later. So this hand register records the hundreds of items that were borrowed by students of the art college between 1880 and the 1950s. It is possible to trace the frequency with which items were borrowed, the popularity of certain collections, and the increased borrowing, for example, an increased borrowing of photography. This, this page dates from the, um, 1905 and records the lending of several watercolours which had originated in the Royal Dublin Society collection. Uh, they include Patrick's House at Arqua by Samuel Prout. It and other, uh, other works were sub subsequently transferred to the National Gallery in 1966. So it's possible to trace the items which were borrowed, such as this portion of a lamp in the Chinese style, moulded in relief, like under a turquoise glaze, and this was borrowed in 1892, or the Spanish style, which was borrowed in tile, which was borrowed in 1915. So some of these items were borrowed as props for models, some for copying as part of the drawing curriculum, and others were for the industrial process that they contained. So this image is taken from the museum's bulletin from 1912 to 1915, and shows a display of plaster casts alongside the students' own work. And I think it reflects the various divisions within the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art. Designs for lace feature alongside the stairwell. And this is um, one particular area where the interaction of the museum and the art college is very evident. There was big borrowing from the historical lace collection. So there's some very interesting correspondence associated with this lending of objects back and forth. So this letter from J.J. Buckley um, is about the borrowing of an object from the museum. Um, and it dates from 1917. It's also worth noting the change in name on the headed paper, now referred to as the National Museum of Ireland. As Elizabeth Crook has noted, the title of the museum has always been mildly contentious. Some refer to it as the National Museum rather than by its official title, the Dublin Museum of Science and Art, so betraying political preferences. Significantly, after Plunkett's arrival to the directorship, the museum was renamed. His report of 1908 reads that it was decided that the museum should henceforth be styled the National Museum of Science and Art Dublin. This title was more appropriate for the institution, having regard to its representative position in the capital as the Museum of Ireland and the Treasury of Celtic Antiquities. Um, 
So this is another letter uh, referring to the borrowing of a shawl. So this letter from the Metropolitan School of Art Dublin to Buckley um, National Museum of Ireland um, where are we now? provides an example of how the museum objects were used as props. And it reads as follows. Dear Buckley, the Chinese silk scarf, silk scarf would be required for a painting subject and would be laid out on the shoulders of a model. The model is posed in William Morphin's private rooms and the study is being done by his advanced students under my personal supervision. If lent, the greatest care will be taking of these articles. Yours sincerely, GA. And that's Armstrong that we heard about earlier. So this is, this is something that I found when looking through the National Museum's records, because the National Museum's director was over the institutions for quite a while. So um, this is an overview of the art college and its students that can be gleaned from these statistics. And these were compiled annually, and they show the students' occupations and those of their parents. Other documents provide their graduation destination, and we sometimes think of these type of records as being something very contemporary and something that's used to sell an institution, but they were being compiled in the late 1890s up to 1926. So the returns exist for the year, years 1916 to 1926 and provide a very interesting insight into the class makeup of the student body. They also reflect the strong differences between those enrolled on daytime and evening time courses, with many working artisans availing of nighttime tuition. And I think you may possibly still see that differentiation between evening and night courses. I teach on night courses in NCAD, so there is a split still. Um, the following return of new student intake for 1916-1917 shows the occupation of those students who worked, and not all had to, and it included teachers, clerks, printers, apprentices, um, shop assistants, carpenters, cabinet makers, a photographer, a news agent, a nurse, a silversmith, brass finishers, glass painters. And an analysis of parental occupations shows that the students included the offspring of professionals, such as engineers and lawyers, managers and clerks, with only one student given their parental occupation as a labourer. During this period, the average number of students of the DMSA was between 300 and 500. As Turpin notes, 483 attended in 1900, numbers built up to 565 in 1903, and then they tended to flow downwards afterwards. So did collaboration between the two institutions change in the post-independence climate? As mentioned previously, a report was undertaken in 1927 by a Scandinavian mu museum expert called Litberg, and it sought to investigate, <coughs> I quote Litberg, thoroughly the question of the purposes to which the National Museum can be put, the needs of the museum, if it fulfills these purposes, and the reorganisation, if any, which may be necessary in order to enable it to do so. So this report resulted in the adoption of some, but not all, the report's recommendations, and I think that's quite typical of the reports we've heard of today, and uh, it goes on. Those that were acted upon were what we would now call cost-neutral and involved the rearrangement of the collection and displays with a pushing to the front of the Irish Antiquities Collection. Crook has outlined this political shift within the museum in her 2000 work, Politics, Archaeology and the Creation of a, Nas of a National Museum of Ireland. In keeping with many post-colonial societies, the preference is given to those objects originating before the period of colonisation, and the National Museum highlighted the antiquarian and Celtic metalwork. Many of the collections which featured in the earlier image of the central court were consigned quite literally to the crypt, and I've worked in the crypt, which was, it's under the museum. 
It should also be remembered that the amount of space available to the museum was reducing during these years. The business of the doll encroached into the spaces which were previously used to house museum collections. Thus, ethnographic material, often with an imperial uh, pedigree, plaster casts, and many of the items from the industrial collections were taken off display. From this period, we see a divestment of certain kinds of collections, such as the offering of the plaster cast to the art college or the National Gallery. Other collections became invisible through lack of access and exposure. Nonetheless, an analysis of the museum director's reports in the first decade of the new state reveals that the level of loans and student visits was retained at the same level as prior to independence. So the report for 1926 says, the attendance of students recorded in this division, that's the art industrial division, um, for the year ending 31st of March 1926 was 1,227, which is a considerable number of students to accommodate drawing and visiting your collection. Loans to the Metropolitan School of Art that, and the objects borrowed by students numbered 132. So I'll now use the collaboration and communication between these two men to explore the way in which the museum collection was used in the 1920s and 30s. So on the left here with the moustache, we see Lee Gogan, who we had the quotation from earlier. Um, and he was, he was employed by the museum pre-1916. And because of his involvement in the Irish Volunteers, he was dismissed from the National Museum of Ireland after the Easter Rising and interned in Frongoch in Wales. On return to Dublin, he worked as a teacher with the Gaelic League and as an organiser for the Sinn Féin Party. Following the treaty in uh, 1922, he was reinstated in his position in Kildare Street. And his records are here at the UCD archive. They make for very lively and interesting reading because he did seem to... Um, engage quite vociferously with um, anybody he encountered. So uh, they're a lively read. So he was an Irish language enthusiast. He worked in both the Irish Antiquities and the Art and Industrial Division of the Museum. So the other man is Cork-born John G. Myrne, and he studied at the Crawford College in Cork and also at the Metropolitan School of Art. And he was one of the first technical teachers appointed by the department. He commenced teaching in Harding Street Trade Preparatory School in Belfast, and he was an instructor in metalwork and woodwork, and that position he held for a number of years before moving to Leitrim to take up, and this is the description of his job, itinerant manual instructor. A job he held for nine years before returning to his native Cork to work in the as a technical instructor in Cork County Committee of Technical Instruction. So this slide shows Mern's entry in the DMSA uh, student register for 1915 when he gave his address as... Um, 27 Percy, Percy Place. I just think that the records of um, the college that are on, online and novel are just an amazing resource. It's a sort of go-to um, from any biographical information. Um, so in addition to attendance at Crawford College, he was on the books at NCAD for about four years, and he would have been exposed to the ideas and teaching methods discussed in the earlier parts of this paper, you know, copying from the items in the museum collection and attending lectures at the gallery and museum. So during Mern's time in Leitrim, when he was the itinerant manual training worker, um, he gave woodwork classes, uh, and this notice in the Connick Tribune shows the courses were not necessarily aimed at those who had attended secondary school. Instead, the emphasis was upon trade, and perhaps this wider knowledge and considerable teaching experience assisted Mern in the completion of his most notable work, The Handbook of Celtic Ornament, which was published in 1930. 
So, but Merlin and Gogan were members of the Academy of Christian Art. Gogan was a founding member and attended the 1929 meeting. And as Sheila Brannock Lynch has noted, the group proposed to, and I quote, to launch nothing less than an Academy of Art in Dublin. Its lofty obje objectives were to improve the quality of church art and to promote the study of Christian art in all its various branches, architecture, painting, sculpture, illumination, iconography, etc. During 1920 and 1930, Gogan and Mern were to work together on the theoretical reconstruction of the missing panels of the High Cross at Tume. And this research involved numerous field trips and two months, a re two months research stint at the museum by Mern. And this was facilitated by Gogan. So Mern presented his work to the Academy in the form of an illustrated lecture and a lengthy paper. The talk was three hours long. So uh, that's a lot of talk on high crosses. So there are records at the National Archives of Ireland relating to the Talbot Press, and they, allow me to they allowed me to trace the genesis of Mern's Handbook of Celtic Ornament from its original pitch through to the book's completion and subsequent publication. So during this period, Mern was unfortunately terminally ill, and much of the correspondence is conducted between his daughter and on, on her father's behalf and uh, Hayes, the director of the press. So this letter, which nears the end of its end of the book's production, tells us much about the transaction and indeed the publishing scene in Ireland. And the Talbot Press records are great because you get a very much a hard-nosed insight into publishing in Ireland. What will what will float? What will sell? What won't sell? Um, and they're quite rare, and there aren't that many records of uh, publishing houses for the period. So interestingly, the print one, as you can see from this letter, is quite substantial. Um, for Ireland, the press's director, director clearly recognises that the publication has potential. So here he is writing to the English publisher. An English publisher uh, agrees to print the book at the same time and to distribute it in England. Um, so, gentlemen, my many many thanks for your confirming letter of the fifteenth of May. Um, we have entered an order for a thousand copies of Celtic ornament in sheets folded and collated at one eleven per copy, delivered free at Bath. We have adopted your suggestion and fixed the, the price in the free state at seven and six, as we quite agree that it would not be possible to have two different prices for the same book. We'll probably be looking into something like that now with uh, Brexit. We are sorry to tell you that our latest information about the author is that he is very unwell and not expected to recover. The, f that, the fact that you have taken up the book for sale will, we are sure, please him very much and help to cheer him up. We shall get your title page set up and show you proofs before we print. We expect to make a delivery of the sheets early in June and you are required to fix a definite publishing date as we shall publish our edition here one day later than the book is being published in Dublin. But these details can be arranged when the sheets are actually in your possession, trusting that the book will be very successful in your hands and that repeat orders will come along in due course. So the book was successful and it's still in print and it's a how-to and a breakdown of how to do Celtic ornament. And it's very much based on that comparative school. He's looking at different symbols and where they turn up. So I also think the subtitle of the book is worth knowing and uh, or worth looking at. It's uh, being a key to the construction of all types of that form of decoration for the use of schools, art teachers, designers, and whoever is interested. So um, he... Uh, he wasn't thinking in an elitist way. He was thinking that this is for anybody. Anybody can have a go. And I think that may feed in from his uh, technical instruction days. 
So Mearns were met with many favourable reviews, for example, this from the Sunday Independent on the 6th of September 1931. The general reader will revel in its beautiful drawings, 700 of them or more, so cunningly planned and placed that step by step the evolution of our native art, from the simple Celtic knot to the most intricate and elaborate designs, is gradually revealed. The trained artist will realise that here is a handbook capable of being turned to important purposes. So this is the breakdown that we see, and there are 700 of these line drawings by Mern within them. There's another one there. So like many of Gogan's interactions, the association with Mern ended in dispute. Following Mern's death, his daughter approached the museum, requesting that the museum purchase her father's drawings related to both the High Cross at Hume and the production of the Handbook of Celtic Ornament. This is another page here. So the following response was sent by Grogan in 1930, Gogan in 1931, and I will read it now. Um, dear, Mrs., dear Mrs. Murphy, uh, Dr. Meyer referred to me your letter of the 13th for reply. I regret that it will not be possible to recommend your late esteemed father's drawings for purchase by the museum. I may again remind you that on completion of his month's study here, under my guidance, your father presented the completed drawings of the tomb cross to me in view of the considerable help I had given him in striking out a new path of achievement and of the recognition of very considerable dimensions. This is a very long sentence. <laughs> of very considerable dimensions and value which, for such a comparatively small amount of effort and a comparatively a short amount of time, I was fortunately able to secure for him. The drawing was returned at his own request to facilitate the preparation for the drawing of the other two sides and to make a certain corrections arising out of his visit to Tume. You will understand, therefore, that I regret the attitude you have taken in the matter. This applies to the second cross study he undertook at the end of the last month he spent here. Um, this was also a collaborative work for which I supplied not only the motive, but a good deal of original materials and references, worth bearing in mind that this is six months after her father has died. I was therefore pained to find the contra that, contrary to academic practice in such matters, your father's material was sent elsewhere for consideration. With sincere good wishes, Liam Gogan. Um, so I think this letter belies many of the attitudes prevalent in hierarchical institutions like the museum and tells us a lot about uh, Gogan's personality. And indeed, these are the sort of institutions where perhaps curators saw themselves at the top of a pecking order. Um, the whereabouts of the drawings is not known. Um, it could be considered a missed opportunity uh, to secure them for the state. So Mern's book is still in print today and uh, it has been published in Ireland, England and is currently being republished in New York and the firms that are publishing it are Pitt, Dover and Blandford. So references to the book abound on the internet with particularly, particular use being made by tattoo artists around the world who specialise in Celtic sleeves and armbands and customised designs. So Mern's step-by-step -step breakdown of the process is invaluable for this. Um, so I think this adoption of Celtic design derived from medieval manuscripts um, and metalwork is perhaps a, perhaps a true popularisation, a democratisation of that art form. And I wonder how the uh, founding fathers of the museum would view it. And it has outclassed it um, some better known, and is better known than the work of a lot of antiquarians. Um, so I think some would doubtless be appalled by its current application. Um, but that is a matter, I think, of taste, and uh, that's probably another paper altogether. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state.
The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was organised by Roisin Kennedy and funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online.